There you have another dose of audio medicine here on Straight Out of Combat Radio. This combat veteran is a prime example of the unbroken soldier. He diminishes the negative stereotypes. He's eloquent. He has a good perspective on life, knows where he's going, has a plan, and some great advice. So this is one you want to hear, and stay for his wisdom at the end. Thank you. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light them up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio. Audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Our veteran guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio is U.S. Army veteran Paul Martinez. Paul spent seven years in special operations and was assigned to the 3rd Ranger Battalion. America has one force with a single mission of direct action to capture or to kill the enemy. That force is the 75th Ranger Regiment. Paul was a sniper with that unit. In fact, he was one of the deadliest snipers and was deployed to Afghanistan not once but six times. As a member of Team Merrill, Staff Sergeant Martinez and the other team members faced impossible odds against an enemy that did everything they could to kill them. Paul is the author of the book, When the Killer Man Comes. It's his personal account of his combat experience as a sniper. He is also the CEO and co-founder of 33 Degrees Publishing, focusing on 21st century digital storytelling. Paul is passionate about telling the untold stories of the global war on terrorism, veteran advocacy, and equine therapy for transitioning veterans. I just thank God that Paul's here to tell us his story. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hi, John. Thanks for uh, having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. And I know that you are, you know, we just talked a little bit before this, that we're all, we're grinding it out and we're busy. And so I know your time's valuable and, you know, we'll just get right to it. Um, Paul, tell us okay. a little bit, of, tell us a little bit about the Martinez family. Okay. So we... Started out in Colorado, me, mom, my brother, my dad. And, uh, you know, my dad was, he had some problems, a little bit too much drinking and some other stuff going on. So he wasn't around as much. So really my family unit is me and my mom and my brother. And uh, we're real close. We were kind of remote from like my cousins and my aunts and uncles and stuff. So uh, we'd see them, but not very much. Yeah, so we were real, real, real close. And now that's still sort of the core of my family. And we just were pretty a pretty average family grew up in the suburbs around Denver, like to fish, hike, camp, get outdoors, that sort of thing. I grew up hunting and shooting guns with, with my father a little bit, um, and, and fishing a lot with my uncles and, and my cousins and stuff. So I was always in, in the outdoors stuff and being in Colorado, that's sort of the thing to do. You know, you snowboard, you skateboard, you ski, you hike, you camp, and you fish, you know? Absolutely. Rock climbing or whatever, so. Did you have any military in your background and your family? My family does, although most of us skipped uh, the Vietnam generation. So my uncle was in during the, uh, the Gulf War, uh, although he did not deploy. He did a career of, of service, though. And then my great-uncles and my grandfathers, they all served. 
some of them at, at various wars and some of them just in peace times. So it was always, you know, my great grandfathers both served too. You know, they were immigrants and stuff. So it was just sort of a, a thing you did in my family. Uh, you you serve your country, and like I said, the the sort of Vietnam generation, my parents' generation, none of them ever served for various reasons. Not because nobody wanted to. It just you know how it goes. Some people they want to go, and they the opportunity isn't there or it isn't whatever, and then they get onto a different path. I got so, that. So, yeah. so when you were in high school, were you like an outstanding student or were you, did you make like the decision, <laughs> hey, you know, I don't know if I'm going away to college. Maybe I'll just go straight into the service. How did that work when you, when you got ready to graduate? Um, I actually never got ready to graduate. I didn't spend a whole lot of time at school. It seemed sort of <laughs> like a, yeah. I, I was never very scholastically inclined. I, I did well on the tests and that, that made me and I did really poorly on my homework. I was that kind of student. So, you know, the teachers are like, you're really bright, but you don't work. And I'm like, yeah, it's because it's not challenging to me and I don't see the point. So uh, <laughs> I actually like, dropped out of You're school. like my <laughs> friends, man. You're like the kind of guy that I hung out with. Yeah, we had some good times. So so you didn't graduate or you oh, did? Yeah. <laughs> I did not. No, I got a GED because the Army said they wouldn't take me if I didn't have one. Right. So, But you so. made the decision to go to the Army then when you were in high school. No, I was out. I was I actually was working. I had uh, worked my way up in the IT community in Colorado. I had a pretty good job. I was, you know, salaried at 19, making good money, had my own place, had a couple cars. You know, I was on track to have a nice, easy career in that field. And, you know, but I was really young, you know, being 19 and being in an office with guys that are excited about buying minivans for their kids or they're excited about soccer practice for their kids. Like, didn't really jive with my mentality back then. So uh, despite the the quality of that opportunity, I was really unhappy. And my buddies who did join right after high school, they were starting to come back from Iraq from the initial invasion. And, you know, I'd sit and talk with those guys over a campfire, over some beers. And I quickly realized, like, these guys are, like, they're my, they're my best friends, you know, and I can't relate to them for one. And there's... You know, there's this thing in their eyes that, you know, it just tells you they're going through some heavy, heavy, heavy things. And I didn't feel right not being a part of that. You know, I felt like I'm back here, you know, enjoying all this blanket of freedom that's being provided by guys that are just like me, you know, and I'm making this money and I'm paying this taxes. And it felt like I was just paying blood money, you know. So no what year was man. this? What what time period was this? Uh, I, let's see. This would be around 2000 four and five when I started considering joining the military and when I started to reconnect with my friends who had left uh, to go and do that. And then what happened? So, so then, then you made the decision to go. So you started to see these guys come back and you're like, you know, it's time for me to, to step up and just do my thing. Yeah. Like a lot of them had only been in for a couple of years, you know, like three to four years. Like we're getting out cause we just, they keep sending us back and it's, you know, it's never going to end. And you know, they, they paid, you know, they paid their dues and they carried their weight and it was time for them to move on. So I got that. And then my brother decided he was going to join. And like I said, it was just me and my mom and my brother growing up for the most part. And uh, being the older brother, I knew I wouldn't be able to relate to him uh, if he went in some pretty important ways. And he always used to look to me for advice. And I thought, you know, if I don't go, then that's kind of the end of me, you know, being there for my brother in that capacity. So he joined up and I he joined the Marine Corps and I joined the army shortly afterwards and we just 
we really took to it, both of us. What was, was uh, like, what was your okay. mom thinking about that? You know, that both of you guys decided to serve your country. Was she proud of you? I'm sure she was. But what was she thinking? Yeah. So, stubbornly, she was very, very proud um, of us. But, you know, I that was a extreme difficulty for her. You know, we left pretty much. We moved out and joined the army and left Colorado at the same time. Oh yeah. And so it's like, it was all gone all at once. Um, so that was tough for her. I think that was probably, it was probably harder on mom than, than anybody else that that part of transitioning into military service. Cause you know, your kids move out, you get the empty nest thing. That's hard. It's hard to watch your kids go out on their own, but to have them all of a sudden gone and then possibly gone for good. Like that was, it's huge. You know, I'm sure most military parents feel that way. So yeah, yeah, she was, uh, she was very proud of us. She was very supportive and we didn't really know just how heavy of a toll she paid for us to go and do this Mm -hmm. until, you know, a few years later, but how's she doing now? Great. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's absolutely. Good. Well, after, yeah, yeah, the smoke is cleared, but uh, so that must have been tough. So, where did you go? You you immediately went into uh, infantry school, Levin Bravo. Is that what you decided to do? Yeah, I uh, knew when I signed up that I had to go and fight. That was the only reason I was in the military. I don't care much for you know uniforms and parades and rank and the, you know the military tradition stuff. I, I don't care for that. I, I understand why it's there. It's just not for me. Right. So I was like, whatever I got to do to fight, you know, like that's all I care about. So I signed up for infantry. I got an airborne contract and my recruiter would not give me uh, um, an option 40 contract or uh, an SF contract. So I picked up Ranger indoctrination program. That's where you try out to be a Ranger. I picked that up in airborne school just by luck. And, uh, yeah, no, I went straight to infantry, straight to Fort Benning, and I stayed there. You know, I was supposed to go to Italy and go join the 173rd after airborne school, but I ended up stay, staying and being a ranger. So, so you went through the whole ranger training, which is, you know, which is basically it's a whole other story. It's not, it, it's it's tough training. You know, I've read many of the accounts of it, and of course. Uh, people listening, Ranger School is not for everybody, but it definitely hones you into being uh, some of the best of the best, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, it. you're going to succeed or it's going to kill you, or damn near. You know, that's sort of... Anything in special operations is kind of like that. Like, it's you're good at it, and you're going you're gonna to do it, or you're going to fail. There's really no okay personnel in uh, special operations, so... It's uh, it's an interesting how that works out. It's one of those, you know, it's it's you get a no go, you're done pretty much. So yeah, in a lot of cases, yep. yeah. So how did you get into sniper training? Was that in Ranger School? Um, no. So the pipeline works like this: you go to, you know, you do your uh, infantry basic, and then uh, in my case, I went to Eleven Charlie training because I was a mortarman. You do that for a few weeks, then you go to Airborne School. I did that for, you know, three and a half, four weeks, whatever it is. Then I spent, uh, I think, a week and a half in holdover, and I went to RIP. And RIP is Ranger Indoctrination Program. It's now called Ranger Assessment Selection Program, and it's changed a little bit. But basically, they throw everything at you physically and mentally, and you either die, quit, get kicked out, or you become a ranger. And there's about a 70, I think it's about a 70% attrition rate in that that selection so 
you do all that, then you get to your unit. And that's the hard part, you know, being in a Ranger battalion and surviving there. Now you're competing against all the guys that made it for a chance to go to Ranger school because you can't stay a private forever. And, and to be a leader in Ranger battalion, you have to go to Ranger school and get your Ranger tab. So right. then you get to do that. So after all of that, um, I did a couple deployments with my Ranger tab as a, as a junior leader. And it was time for me to get out of the army. And my friend Nicholas Irving, who I now run uh, 33 degrees with, he saved my life in Southern Hellman. You know, I didn't even, it was one of those weird close calls. I was just walking down the, down the road after uh, me and a mortar team had engaged this machine gun and killed those guys and we're get up and we're picking up to move. And I turned to face down the road, the direction we're going. And there's a, Taliban dude and he's got an AK-47 and he's pointing it straight at my grape and all he's got to do is pull the trigger you know of course my weapon's at the low ready there's no way I'm going to beat him to the punch so you know but I'm trying anyway everything's sort of in slow motion and then I just see his kafia, you know his headscarf fly up into the air and like an instant later I can hear Nick's sniper rifle and Nick just zapped this guy in the face he'd already had him in his scope luckily yeah. and you know an instant before the guy could pull the trigger he was dead yeah, so I saw that, and me and I was real close to Nick on that deployment. We just our elements were working together. You know, I kind of kind of saw the difference he made on the battlefield, and I knew I'd always wanted to be a sniper, and I knew there was it within my grasp because I trained with Nick quite a bit growing up in Ranger Battalion. And I thought, you know, if I get out of the army without doing this, I, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. So I spent the next six months begging and pleading for them to let me try out for the sniper section at Third Ranger Battalion. And they finally did, so I re-enlisted for that. And then, you know, from there it was... Did you go back to the States? Your... You went back to the States for sniper training? Yeah, yeah. So we we went back after um, the deployment I just told you about, and we were doing our training cycle in the United States. And, you know, I should have been transitioning out, but really I was just spending my time negotiating and trying to convince them to let me stay, you know, right. and, and be a sniper. So, yeah, all that happened in the States. And then... You do sniper school at Fort Benning, um, and we did a, a few other uh, shooting courses that, you know, some of them are from civilian instructors, some of them are from other other places, and uh, yeah, trained up, and then I think it was nine months after, uh, after I got back from the deployment, I was back overseas as a sniper. I was less than nine months, it was like seven. So yeah, it's fast, it's fast timeline. What year was that when you went back as a sniper? That would have been 2010, I believe. And so your book, When the Killer Man Comes, it's about primarily about those deployments as a sniper? It's about um, one deployment in particular in, in 2011 to 2000, uh, 2010 to 2011, excuse me, we were overseas we were part of a special task force called Task Force Merrill, and Task Force Merrill was modeled a lot after Merrill's Marauders, the, the Burma Rangers from World War II. And the reason being is, you know, President Obama had announced our drawdown in 2014 was upcoming, and there were places in Afghanistan where nobody had ever gained a foothold except for the Taliban, and they had been operating there with impunity for almost a decade. And that was really sort of the, the source of infection in that com country in a lot of ways. What were they? What they were, was the Taliban like? What were they? They just had no. Uh, uh, did they have any principles at all? 
Yeah, yeah, they they do. You know, that's the thing is they're, I mean, to paint it in very broad strokes, they're, they're religious fanatics. So they, they absolutely have principles and they're very <laughs> adherent to them. But the, the things that they can do to justify those principles um, are pretty atrocious in most cases. And the thing about the Taliban is it's spectrum like anything else. They're, they're bad guys, don't get me wrong. Every, every single one of them that I shot in the face, I would shoot them in the face again. But it's interesting. It's, it's still a collected, collection of humans, you know, and that's something I kind of process as, as I get further and further away from it. So um, at that time, the people we were going after, they were like the, the, the superstars of the Taliban. You know, there was that, that assassin back in the, the 90s or 80s or whatever called the Jackal or, you know, like the high-level operatives from different terrorist cells. Like, these are the guys that, you know, you'd make a movie about. They they can't be detected. They're always a step ahead of, you know, whatever material, um, intelligence apparatus is looking at them. They can't be caught. They've got massive resources, and they just, they're seeing all the gaps, and you know, they're you, able to operate with impunity. You, you mentioned the resources. You know, you would think that, that they would be somewhat primitive, but the resources are coming from somewhere and they're able to, so they had the technologies too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, they're extremely technologically advanced. Now you're running the mill Taliban Hill fighter, you know, he might be, you know, some young guy from another country got shipped over. He wants to get his jihad on. They're not going to invest a lot of resources in him. They'll teach him how to shoot. They have an AK 47 or some other Soviet era piece of junk weapon say hey go get crazy but the people that are orchestrating this i mean they're moving personnel weapons equipment and other material across multiple international borders you know through multiple different jurisdictions of police and you know law enforcement entities and military entities they're connected and they're resourced and you have to be up on technology and you know they're watching us too you know the things we're putting on social media the stuff that's happening on our news you know the announcements that our politicians are making down to like you know senators and governors they're watching that and they're using that as part of their intel apparatus so this isn't you know a booger eater in the cave with his sandals you know these are very, it's a very sophisticated enemy, and I think people, they don't realize that. And uh, I kind of didn't realize that until the, the, the task force Merrill deployment, you know, and we started chasing these guys who had basically been shadows that normal, from a normal military intelligence perspective, you wouldn't even think this guy exists. You're like, oh, this, this intelligence blip is just an anomaly. It's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. But we actually were able to zoom out and look at the big picture and all of a sudden you're looking at a network hmm. that spans the whole globe um, and has been operating right under our noses for you know almost a decade and they're effective they're effectively the people who are the driving force behind the entire conflict uh, so well you, it was an eye-opener i bet it was you know so you described that where well, your buddy basically saved your life in that first deployment you know, when yeah. you went back as a sniper, tell us about one of your, you know, if you don't compromise anything, but tell us about one of your successes that you and your, the, the guys that you worked with uh, that saved American lives. Um, I think the biggest success we had, I mean, I, I was really lucky overseas and I was with a bunch of good guys. And so we, 
we had a lot of successes. I think the one of the most impactful ones that I'll always remember, there was a small combat outpost way up north by the Uzbekistan border, and there were a bunch of uh, cavalry troopers up there. They were cut off. They couldn't get resupplied, and they'd been taken. They'd been fighting their own little war of attrition, completely removed from the entire world with uh, the Uzbeki militants that were up there, which are essentially Taliban. They're all kind of the same. You know, it's not like a gym membership and you're an L.A. fitness guy or, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever guy. You know, you I sort of it. just fit in wherever you can get the jihad on. So there were probably about, in the, in the larger sector of their AO, there are probably about 10,000 fighters up there um, that coming and going at any time. And they're cut off. I mean, and when you're cut off and you're in the United States Army, that's a big deal. When when a battalion of Marines can't come bail you out, or third or infantry division can't roll over the hills with their tanks and come bail you out, that's a bad spot. Yeah, that's probably the worst spot you can be in. Um, so we caught wind of this, and we'd been watching their situation for a little while, and we needed a mission set, and we thought, you know, this is perfect for us. So we went in with two platoons of Rangers, and we split our forces so that one would. Uh, Essentially, one took the high ground on these cliffs that were overlooking this valley with every heavy weapon we had. And the rest of us, um, we went in on foot, you know, with just our small arms, as, as light as we could. And we came in at night on some National Guard birds, and they basically just did touch and two touch-and-go landings, and we all bailed out of there. And, uh, and then we walked out the gate, got into the night, you know, and just started waking people up. And tell them, hey, you know, tell tell the fighters we're here. Tell them that where we're going to be. Tell them to come and fight us. And we just kept walking further and further away from that combat outpost. Now, in that immediate area, like in the two valleys that surrounded that, were probably about, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 fighters. Who knows? And there are just 40 or 50 of us on the ground and then a, a few more of us up in the hills um, with machine guns to overwatch us where we were going to sort of lay ourselves out as bait. Um, and that's what we did. We just walked out until the sun came up, tried to find people that wanted to fight us. Didn't happen. Um, and then morning came, and we sort of hid ourselves and just left a few of our uh, teams exposed. So it looked like we were there weren't very many of us out there. And the Taliban obliged. They came in in mass and they fought us and they tried to surround us. And you know, just about the time when uh, they would have decisively surrounded us and taken over. You know, the other ranger uh, platoon that was up in the hills, they opened up with all their heavy weapons and just hammered them. Now, I don't know, remember how many guys we killed in total that day, but it was a lot. It made a huge difference. And then we ended up running back to the FOB, you know, through fire, just 13-kilometer running firefight in the heat of the desert through, you know, basically they're like rice paddies. They flood, had flooded their fields for their spring farming. Right. So, you know, you're in knee-high water. You know, trying to get your fight on. Uh, but when we got back, you know, the those Cav Scouts were like, oh, holy crap. Like, we actually just got bailed out. We're going to be okay. And they were actually able to get a little breathing room and start punching back, you know, and asserting their, uh, their position there. And they were getting resupplied after that. So that's probably the, the greatest success that I got to be a part of, just off the top of my head. So, Well, thank you for telling us about that one. I know that... Uh... You know, these are the kind of stories that you talk about that don't get told and need to be told because people have to understand that it, I, you know, you just educated me. I didn't realize that that enemy was as sophisticated as, you know, I'd always thought even at this stage of the game that they were a bunch of guys just sitting in caves 
doing medieval things and and you know obviously they weren't and thank god we had you know soldiers like yourselves over there you know taking care of business the way you did when you so you had you didn't have one or two deployments so you had six total and then you rotated back to the states when did you finally make the decision uh that you had had enough and it was time for you to come back home uh my last deployment we had started to uh, take the drawdown very seriously. We were implementing a lot of um, transition in that regard. So a lot of training of Afghans and things like that. And at the same time, green on blue attacks, which is, you know, when an Afghan army man attacks, uh, you know, a U.S. personnel or attacks his own personnel, those attacks were increasing. And part of that was out of desperation. And part of that was there are, there are a lot of reasons behind that. But anyhow, so that was happening a lot. And um, on my net, I was projected to be a trainer the following deployment. And I just can't imagine training somebody that's not wearing an American flag on their uniform how to shoot a sniper rifle. I mean, if you don't speak English, I'm not teaching you how to shoot, bottom line. And that was probably going to be my job. And my back injuries had gotten bad enough that I was having a pretty hard time keeping up with the younger rangers you know so i was probably just a few steps away from being a liability uh, in combat rather than an asset and i thought you know you got to be a man about these things and know your limitations so i um, applied myself to an instructor position at fort bragg to teach americans how to shoot <laughs> sniper rifles and they gave it they gave it to me and uh yeah that was kind of it you know if i was still strong and healthy you know, and, and I didn't have the injuries, I probably would have just tried to go to a different unit, you know, one where I wasn't going to ever have to instruct Afghans. But, you know, that was the Ranger mission, and it wasn't for me, and it's a volunteer um, unit. So, you know, I, I figured it was best for me to bow out at that point. So and, you uh, went back to, Bra then you were at Fort Bragg when you finally ets No, actually, I was, uh, I ended up back at Fort Benning to ETS. I was on a, on a med board. And that was my home station, so uh, they were assessing me for medical retirement um, because of all the injuries I had sustained. And yeah, so I just spent the last year just cooling my heels, and it was really it was wasn't even a choice that I had to make. You know, I probably could have stayed in the army and gotten a desk job in a in a soft skill MOS, but you know, like I said, I joined to fight. If I can't fight, I don't belong in the military. I mean, I'm a terrible garrison soldier. I'm not afraid to admit it. So, you know, it's funny. I've I've heard that from um, a few, you know, special operations guys that, you know, they they actually love being out in the sticks and in the thick of it. And uh, you get back to garrison, or they sitting around the desk type jobs that just you know drove them nuts. So I hear you on that. Um, yep. So you, so, <laughs> yeah, so when you, makes my skin crawl. So. <laughs> I can imagine. So so you ETS. What was that transition like? Did you get an out brief or, or tell me about that? They have a whole program for you to go through and there's some pretty beneficial things in there. I, I disregarded most of it because, you know, it's hard to explain why. But anybody who's been through the, uh, the ACAP process, it's the Army Career something, advisement program. It's just kind of crap, you know? Like the people that they... Uh, they, they get to help you out in large part. You look at them and you're like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be like you and I, I don't feel like you've been a particularly successful person. So you kind of disregard their advice, which is a mistake and it's judgmental. It's just 
kind of the military mentality, I suppose, uh, when you're getting out and you've been mentored by these guys that have a bunch of medals on their chest. So that wasn't very helpful to me. And, you know, they did stuff like, oh, write a resume. I'm like, yeah, you know, I wrote resumes before I joined the Army. So I don't, you know, that's like a, a bunch of boxes you got to check. You got to write a resume before you can get out. You got to, um, you know, do a bunch of stuff like that. So yeah, it wasn't helpful to me at all. They have some job fairs and things like that. And I think those are um, beneficial to some people. But um, for me, I, I mostly just brushed off as much of that stuff as I could and then sort of bowled my way out of there. Right. So you ETS'd, you know, out of Benning. And then was your mom still in Colorado or has she moved by then? Did you go back to Colorado? Sorry, say that again? Yeah, did you go back to Colorado or what did you do? Was had your mom moved out of that state or what was where, where did you go back? Um I I never did go back actually. I went to Virginia, linked up with some ranger buddies I knew up there that right. were farming and I did that for a little while. Farm works hard work when you have a bunch of spinal injuries. So that didn't exactly work out for me. Um but it was interesting. It was a nice way to sort of bridge the gap between you know, going to the field and going to a shooting range and, you know, working out of a Humvee and that sort of thing. Right. You know, farm life, you're working out of a big pickup, you're out in a literal field, you know, you get to shoot guns if you want to. And, you know, you're doing, you know, physical things that keep you active. So it's, it's nice. And it's a thinking man's game as well. So uh, it was cool. I sort of, um, put a lot of demons to rest by doing that, you know, when you when I left the army, I was drinking a lot and uh, you know starting to fat in the bud, and I had some sort of I had, you know I had stress issues, you know I was a little paranoid. Did you so, did you, you think know, that it was bad enough to get any kind of help for it, or did you just work yourself through it? I um I did seek some help from the VA. Uh, funny story. I requested grief counseling because I I want to be able to tell the stories of my buddies that I've lost without breaking down and crying my eyeballs out um, which is something i'm still working on i figure you know i have grief that's what this is i'll go to a grief counselor that will be helpful while i was in talking to the grief counselor he says you know you got a lot of anxiety and automatically they want to say hey it's because of the war and sure and give you I'm, pills I'm sure a, yeah yeah they tried to prescribe me everything under the sun and i declined it which they didn't like to hear so you know my files at the va i'm argumentative or confrontational or you know they'll even say stuff like you know this person thinks he knows more than the doctors and really i I read the side effects of the pills and i don't want to take a pill that could do that to me it's not simple you know there's no there's no guile there's no no ego in it i just don't feel comfortable with that and also you know you have the same career for nine years you make your living with your body now your body's broken that career's gone all your peers which are the most honorable, outstanding men and women that you could possibly ever work with because they're special operations, they're all branches of the military, and all that's gone, right? That is all that you need to have anxiety. You know what I'm saying? Like, imagine if you take your job away, take your friends away, move you to another state, and you got to start completely over after a decade. No, well, you're <laughs> basically reinventing yourself, and... and- yeah, I, I get it, man. And when they do prescribe these pills, you know, if they don't know your body chemistry, the pills don't do any good. They Well, I don't want to say that, but they may for some well, people, but they can do some crazy things to your mindset. Yeah, they, they, look, they exist and they're prescribed for a reason, you know, and they're helpful to some people. I just think that, you know, in the case of most soldiers, they're not. 
you know, or if they are like, you need to, you need to tread those waters very carefully. That's kind of, <laughs> you know, exactly, man. You know, it's kind of like why we're even having this podcast because the stereotypes that, that are out there for combat veterans and veterans in general, most of the time just isn't true. And I don't understand how yeah. these come about, you know, but, but the reality is, is that we're just humans going through uh, what humans go through. And to try to put a negative spin on it to me just doesn't make any sense. It's actually quite dishonorable, if you ask me. Yeah, I'm pretty dissatisfied with the way that the mental health works in, in the entire United States, um, and, but especially in the veteran uh, veterans affairs. You know, the, the fact that, you know, that you can walk into a veterans affairs office or treatment facility, whatever, and say, hey, I want to talk to somebody because I'm having some anxiety in my life or some stress in my life or whatever, which is a normal thing to do. And they'll, they'll have you fill out a checklist. And if you fill out that checklist and you answer so many questions a certain way, you are diagnosed with PTSD yeah. by a checklist. You know what I mean? Like, and one of the things is, and I've gone over this multiple times with multiple healthcare providers because I want to understand the system. And uh, mm-hmm. they'll say, okay, well, you said you have nightmares. But, <laughs> John, who doesn't have nightmares? I've had nightmares since I was a little kid. So was I born with PTSD? It, of course not. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, it's true <laughs> you know though, I mean? man. You know, but you can have, you can lose your job and have a traumatic effect over it. You can, you can have financial ruin. People, exactly. you know, it's amazing. And that's what I'm talking about, Paul. It's like the labeling of people for their trauma drives me yeah. flipping insane man and i bet i gotta be careful when i say that because maybe somebody's checking a box on us right now and they're saying those guys are but 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 it's true i mean why label somebody for just being human you know it's i'm i'm with you you know i really think that it's just i think the science is behind the reality of it you know especially when it comes to psychology and and how you diagnose certain things like if everybody, and I have had this conversation with mental health professionals at the VA as well, they will say, okay, you've been on six deployments, they were combat deployments because you were a ranger. So yes, they say, that alone means you have PTSD. And I'm like, that's absurd. That's completely absurd. Can you so I just, exactly. Yeah. And so I said, okay, so if just by the fact that I'm a human being and I've experienced these things, that means I have PTSD. Like, yep, Mike, so how is that a disorder? If every human that's going to experience this is going to react this way, then that's not a disorder. That's just the human body reacting to trauma. That's how it, what it does. So I really like the phrase PTS, you know, because you absolutely should have stress after trauma. That's normal. Everybody's going to do it. But it doesn't stigmatize you with that D word, you know, the disorder, that there's something wrong with you. And so I'm very adamant about that. Like there's... Yes, you may feel some hypervigilance. You ought to. You had to be hypervigilant for a decade or for five years or what have you so that you could live, so you could do your job. That's not going to last forever, but it it is going to go with you into your civilian transition for a time. And you should address it. You think about it, and and you can remedy these things. That doesn't mean you have disorder. Exactly. I couldn't have said it any better myself when you said you know the labeling and the stigma that goes with it. And you're right. Who wouldn't 
be going through those things that you had to be in order just to survive. And I, I you know what, I, I just, it drives me crazy because, you know, they gave me for sleep deprivation, my own injury, uh, Prozac. And of course, within a few weeks, I was suicidal. And I'm like, oh, this is not right. I went cold turkey on it, ended up going to yeah. uh, CBDs, which is the cannabidiols, uh, pharmaceutical grade hemp. Yep. You know, no THC involved. And by the way, first dose, I'll tell you, Paul, I, it was almost like magic. So, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, just, I, I'm with you. I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of veterans and a lot of other uh, people with ailments that try cannabis solutions and whether it's CBDs or, or other things. And it's like an epiphany for them. You know, it just it's fast. It works. It's safe. The peace of mind I think that people get from from cannabis products uh, is not to be underestimated. I mean, the fact that you never have to worry if you're that one in one million that's going to become suicidal from this pharmaceutical thing, or you're that one in one million who's going to have, you know, internal bleeding from this medicine, or or some weird side effect that can kill you from some pharmaceutical thing. Like just the fact that, you know these products will never do that to you make me believe that that cbds and cannabis should be you know um much more encouraged than they are absolutely so you know so definitely some deep things and you know those are the reasons we do what we do and you know so tell us about 33 degree publishing and and i know that you and i came through a project i know that you've been behind the tilt shift project with Jose yep. Torres, but I, you know, tell us about your company and how did you get involved in publishing? And we, and I said at the outset, it's 21st century digital storytelling, which is, I think the yep. direction you guys are going in. Yep, it is. So we sort of, Nick and I are both published authors through, through legacy publishers. And that, that was a good experience. Uh, but once we, people found out about that, we were sort of flooded with people that are like, I have this story to tell. Well, how do we tell it? And you know, your traditional traditional publishing model it lends itself to literature, and that's great, and we absolutely need that. But not everybody is a Shakespeare. Not everybody, you know, is is a literary writer. Some people just have a story to tell, and it doesn't matter what kind of education they have or if they know anything about syntax and sen- sentence structure. You know, what matters is if they can tell that story in a compelling and charismatic way. And one of the ways that we can gauge that is sort of by, uh, you know, just listening to them and, and how they come to us. So Nick and I got to talking We thought, you know, how do we, how do we get these stories out there? Cause they're not, not always suitable for, you know, mm-hmm. a traditional publishing model. And that we came up with a plan and we thought, well, we'll just, we, we will be the publisher and we'll hand select these stories and we'll carry them to fruition. You know, so from day one, we're very small scale. We're not trying to publish a million books, but each each author that we have, and we we consider them more clients than authors because it's not imperative that you can write. There's some amazing writers out there. Maybe they've never done anything in their life. You know, like not to knock Stephen King, but other than being a fantastic writer, what what has Stephen King done to tell a story about himself? You know, I mean, at this point, his success is its own story, but. You kind of see what I'm saying? So, Absolutely, man. It, yes. And, you know, I got to come up with a phrase for that. You're talking 21st century digital storytelling. I'm like, how do you get the word authentic in there? 
you know? <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing. These are real people. These are real stories. Not necessarily true stories, but stories that have value, lasting value uh, that's going to make an impact. And not just for, you know, the people that read them, but the, the people that are that we're helping to publish as well. Um, the, the other thing that we, we really like to do is to be very hands-on. We're not distracted by, you know, by volume, I should say. Uh, so we get to, like I said, hand carry each client from the concept of their idea to a completed product that they're proud of. And then we put that out into the world and we try to focus on people that have a message. You know, you may have, you know, 50 shades of gray, great book, right? Everybody read it, made a bunch of sales. So from that perspective, it's a success, but what's the message, you know, like, how is that enriching anybody's life? If you've ever read a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, it talks a lot about the old American storytelling tr tradition. And these these people would go around the country in tents, and they'd have what are called Chautauquas. And they would it's a it's a long story, it's an oral story, and they tell it over and over to groups of people, new groups of people in new places. And it, there's a lesson, and you're gonna walk away from that, you know, enriched. And that was sort of our idea. Like that's a tradition that's existed since man started speaking yeah. and it's one that's sort of been lost that oral storytelling tradition and we decided that you know the digital world that we're in the connectedness that we're in really lends itself to that you can reach a group of people on a podcast you know thousands at a time all across the country and you're you're communicating with them you're sharing something with them and now that's a you've made that the world a little bit smaller you know you've made your community a little bit tighter so well you know that's sort of yeah that's refreshing that you guys are going to bring uh, that component to your store, to your book writing, you know, because uh, isn't it true? Correct me if it isn't, but don't they even have like college degrees for storytelling? Isn't there, aren't there degrees for that? You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I think there is. No, I'm serious. As you can be, but there are, I mean, you can go to um, get a master's of fine arts in writing in just about anything. And I think that's great. We need wordsmiths. We absolutely need them. But I think in many cases, the people we're reading, you know, they it's just because they're wordsmiths. It's not because they've, they've got a, a valuable life experience or a message that we really need to hear, you know. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you, you need entertainment. I think that's why people like, like J.K. Rowling, why she, she's so compelling, All right, She writes a great story, but she's writing from the perspective of a, a woman who's actually endured hardship and raised her family from nothing up to, you know, the billion dollars she has in the bank now, you know, like that's, that's somebody with life experience. That's somebody that knows what these emotions mean. And I think that's why people gravitate to, to her books is because, you know, they're, Harry Potter's not just Harry Potter. He's real. They're real. She put those real emotions there. So, uh, you know, so tell us the, about the name 33 degrees. 33 is a lucky number for, for Nick, first of all, but also if you look at history, uh, people like 33 degrees is the angle of certain pyramids from a numerology perspective. Uh, the number 33 has a lot going on and you know, there's a reason that people all over the world think that, you know, I don't know what you call it. I'm not very into mysticism. I'm not into numerology that much. But I believe where there's smoke, there's fire. And uh, if there's energy behind it, there's energy behind it. It's also, you know, we're, we're trying to build something, and it's not just what you can see. And, and it is a number that is sort of 
globally recognized um, in a very subtle way. Um, and then it's associated with a lot of different groups. And so we just thought, you know, this seems like a good, a good number. Um, it's Nick's l- lucky number. You know, he, his um, unofficial call sign was Reaper 33 because mm. he had that many confirmed kills um, on the deployment where he saved my life in, in Kandahar, Afghanistan. So we just, we just went with it. I, I like the story behind it because, you know, and I agree that is a powerful number. I've, I've got three threes in my cell phone number. So kind of interesting. But uh, so, you know, let me ask you this, Paul, what does freedom mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I don't know. I mean, it means a lot of things to me. Mostly it means tolerance, you know, and I, I don't mean that from like, uh, I don't mean like the complete tolerance except anything that I think a lot of people on the extreme fringes of uh, certain segments of our society believe. But, you know, like the the, the NFL thing where players want to kneel for the, the national anthem. Like, all right, you don't get to do whatever you want at work. That's That's what I have to say. But, you know, if you feel a certain way when a song's playing, I don't care what song it is. Do what you want to do. Maybe disrespectful. Maybe I don't like it. But that's freedom. You know, if you want to get out on the street and protest, I don't care if I disagree with you. I'd rather see somebody protesting, walking in the street, you know, waving a sign about something I completely disagree with than to have a society that lives in fear, but where only my ideas and my ideals are accepted. You know, and that's to me, that's freedom. I believe like freedom is, you know, don't don't interfere with your neighbor, you know, and and speak your mind and, and live the way you want and allow others to live the way they want. You know, and that's what I fought for. I, you know what? It's, I, that's a great way of saying it, too, Paul. I always say that kneeling is a form of prayer. <laughs> you know, it's a way. You sure. know, of course, it could piss you off because it's the flag, but I always say, you know what? It's a form of prayer. You know, and in America, hey. if they want to pray when the flag's going by, and somebody will probably send me a nasty email, but let them do it. You know, I mean, that's, a bunch of, yeah, anyhow. Yeah, I'm with you. It's got nothing to do with me, honestly. I mean, it's, as a veteran, I mean, like what what is somebody kneeling over you know police brutality or whatever it is like what does that have to do with veterans or me the flag doesn't even have anything to do with veterans it's everybody's flag i don't i didn't own the flag all of a sudden on the day i signed up for the army yeah. you know what i mean and you know they don't they don't play the national anthem at football games for my sake so you know i i think it's kind of um it's just weird that the veterans have gotten dragged into this at all. You know, I don't take somebody kneeling or protesting or whatever they want to do during, you know, a flag raising or an anthem or a pledge of allegiance. I don't take that as anything against veterans. It's got nothing to do with it, you know? So I hear you. Yeah, who cares? I mean, it's a football game. It's a game. It's a game for children. You know, like that's, you know, and the older I get, the more I see it's just a game. You know, there's more important things sometimes than to spend two and a half, three hours watching one event. You know, it's like, gosh, I can't sit here for that long. Well, you know what? I got three questions for you. We're getting ready. Yeah. Right. Uh, first question, and then I'll give you the second and third, and then think about it for a second. But first one is, in the words of Paul Martinez, what do you want the non-veteran community to know about combat veterans? And then... What would you say to your brothers and sisters who have worn the uniform that might be in a bad place? And the last one, and I'm I'm making your brain work today, brother. The, the, <laughs> the last one is, what do you want 
If Paul Martinez was not here, what do you want people to say about about him? What does he want to be remembered uh, for? So, non-veterans, veterans, and the population when when Paul maybe isn't with us. Um, you know, I guess the the biggest thing I see when I interact with uh, civilians that relates to to combat experiences, you know, we're not all created equal, and we're not crazy. Like, there's one out of all of our entire generation that is going to do the Rambo thing and freak out. You know, that that's not normal and that's not because of the war necessarily. And that's not, we're okay. I guess is my point. Like combat vets, we're okay. We're not going to lose our mind, you know, and do something dramatic. That's just not it. Now a veteran may do that, but he was already crazy. You know what I mean? Like that's been my experience at least. Right. So, you know, get to know, get to know your, your, your combat veteran, ask him some questions. Cause maybe he was, you know, motor T and he got rocketed all the time and that he shook up from that. Maybe he was a, you know, a, a ranger sniper and he shot a bunch of dudes in the face and that's a different thing. Maybe he was a medic and he had to patch people back together. We all have experienced different things. Combat isn't, isn't a catch all, you know, and we would, just because we were in combat doesn't necessarily mean we were fighting. So I think, you know, just don't be afraid to ask the questions and get to know them. You know, because we're not really afraid to talk about it. And if we are, we'll tell you, you know, we're, we're not spineless. Right. Um, and then as far as combat vets that might be in a bad place, I mean, it's hard. It's hard for guys like us and, and, and gals like us to ask for help. So, you know, and they say, oh, we'll call the hotline or do this or do that. You know, I've had positive experiences with that, um, either personally or, or secondhand. And I've had negative experiences with that in both instances. So, you know, I think that the most effective thing I've done or that has I've seen done is call your buddies, make a make a list if you have to, and don't forget. But don't you know? Don't look at the the call from the ranger buddy you haven't talked to in months or years, and just say, ah, I'll get him later, because later's not going to happen, you know. And we started doing that. My peers uh, from the platoons I've worked with and the guys that I've hung out with, we started doing that after you know a rash of suicides, and. I got to tell you, it's made a huge difference, you know, and I feel that feeling of helplessness you have when you know you're somebody's in trouble or after somebody, you know, you know, makes the, uh, the ultimate decision and, and takes their own life or something like that. You don't have that un- uneasy feeling like that's just going to sneak around yeah. the corner when you're staying in contact with people. And that's the biggest thing is we don't we understand each other in a certain way uh, and relate to each other in a certain way. And, you know just making that phone call makes a world of difference. So, so do that, you know, and then as far as what people want, what I want people to think about me or say about me when I'm gone, to be honest, man, I, I kind of don't care. You know what I mean? I, I got to be, I got to stand shoulder to shoulder with the, the greatest generation of warriors that's ever existed in the history of history. You know, I got to fight side by side with, you know, green berets and, marine marsoc and seals and army rangers and delta force like i got to do that you know and i'm forever part of that history and that to me is like a little bit of immortality so you know i'll let i'll let my record stand for itself and since then you know now i publish books and that you know when you're an american author published in the united states your your book goes in the library of congress and that book's going to be there you know until somebody comes and tears down the white house and kicks us all out of here so I don't really feel like I have anything to say. And, you know, if somebody has an opinion, it's fine. But I, I feel like 
my legacy and the and the things that I've done and the people I've got to stand shoulder to shoulder and be counted amongst that that'll outlast anybody any words anybody's going to eulogize about me so oh well spoken you know and you know some great advice for those men and women who might be there and you know how can people find out more about 33 publishing and also 33 degree publishing and also you know in contact you if they want to get in touch with you so i'm really easy to get a hold of i'm pretty i'm active on social media i don't really do phone calls and emails unless it's for family but you can always hit me up at billybadass375 on Instagram or Facebook. I am killerman375 on Twitter, although I don't tweet that much. I'm trying to do more. And you can check out 33 Degrees from either through my Instagram or on our website, which is just 33degreespublishing.com. Uh, you can Google search that. If you want to find the book, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Nobles. Just punch in When the Killer Man Comes, you'll find it. Or you can Google search it. Just when the killer man comes, or Paul Martinez sniper, you'll you'll find it, um, and you'll find my social media as well. And feel free to reach out, shoot a message. I mean, I'm just a normal guy, so <laughs> that's awesome, man. Thanks for that information. I just want to say that uh, appreciate your time greatly. Definitely glad you made it back safe, Paul. Um, definitely honored Thank and humbled you. to have you here on Straight Out of Combat Radio, and uh, look forward to our next time we can chat. If there's anything awesome. we can ever do here for you, you know, let us know. We're we're easy to find too. No, definitely. And like I said, you know, we're I'm backing up uh, Jose's project, his tilt shift projects. I'm real excited about that. So you know, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Definitely looking forward uh, to it, man. That process. Yeah, we What's got. What's that? We're definitely looking forward to that. We got some stuff going on there too. So yeah, that's going to be cool, and I can't wait to see that project come to fruition. So just want to say thank you for being here again, and. uh I look forward to the next time, and there you have it, Paul Martinez, awesome. U.S. Army sniper who who has his head screwed on straight. Uh, thankful and grateful for him. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken.